First, though, we are going to check check in with a treasurer at the BCGEU and talking about pandemic pay. Paul Finch joins me on the line. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk a little bit, because this goes back to when the pandemic first started, when we started to realize what exactly we were dealing with. We still didn't know a ton about COVID-19. Uh, some workers were promised a temporary pandemic pay. So where are we with that? Well, unfortunately, uh, no one's received that, that pay yet. Um, and of course, it was a 16-week period uh, that the eligibility was announced for. Um, and, and this was really to acknowledge the, the risk that these uh, thousands of frontline workers, thousands of our members, and of course, uh, others were experiencing uh, in, in the midst of, of those early days of the pandemic. And uh, in some cases, of course, uh, isolating from their families so they could continue to do their jobs, incurring extra costs. And and so this premium of about $4 an hour on their shift was was to recognize that. It was for a 16-week period starting on March 15th. And, uh, you know, what's happened, unfortunately, is there there was a thought that uh, this, this money would be paid out in, in July. Uh, and, of course, uh, what's occurred is, is we're here, we are in September. It still hasn't paid out. And a lot of these workers who incurred extra costs, um, you know, were really counting on this money to pay their bills, Um and so they're they're caught in a very difficult place. Uh, we think the delay is unacceptable, and it, it really sends the wrong message. And compounded on it, of course, uh, and, I, and I have to say this is that um, you know the the lowest paid frontline workers in the crisis, and I'm referring to public liquor store and cannabis employees, childcare workers, uh, were not included in the um, in the pandemic pay. And of course. Uh, there's a lot of frustration around that as well. Uh, so were they promised the money then? You said it was promised to be paid out in July. Have you been given a reason as to why it hasn't been paid out? You know, I, I wouldn't say that it was promised to be paid out in July. I think that there was there was messaging from employers. So, And some, some employers did promise, some others didn't. Uh, you know, we're not sure what, what the holdup is. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We know that uh, other provinces that have also received this federal funding to uh for this pandemic pay have already been able to pay out. So, for example, Manitoba and Ontario paid out uh, in late July, early August. Uh, so, you know, I think we always understand there's sometimes hiccups in, in the bureaucracy, but uh, this just seems, uh, this is getting a bit ridiculous. And so, of course, uh, our members are very frustrated and um, it, it's hard to understand what, what the delay is. Uh, how many workers are we talking about? So we're, we're talking about, you know, I'd say tens of thousands of workers. I, I know for a fact there's um, uh, well over 10,000 inside our union alone uh, that are covered under this program. So uh, I don't have exact numbers on it. Um, you know, I think the Ministry of Finance would be the best place to, to ask for those those overarching numbers. And when you talk about the the, uh, the costs that they incurred, uh, and I think you kind of touched on this, but are you talking about if somebody in the beginning when we really didn't know much about the virus, if they were, say, staying at a hotel to isolate away from their family or driving to work rather than taking transit because of concerns over transit and that kind of thing? Absolutely. And, and in many cases, uh, you know, we our members were purchasing their own personal protective equipment because it wasn't being made available by their employers. Uh, there was a lot of things going on, I think, in the beginning. And, and, and thankfully, a lot of that stuff's been resolved now. But really, I think the pandemic pay acknowledged two things. One was some of the extra costs they were incurring. And the other thing is the, the extra risk they were taking uh, to, to go to work and, and as frontline workers. So um, it, this is essential because I, I, I know, you know, firsthand talking to a lot of my members that uh, they were counting on this money to, to pay their bills. And um, they're they're deeply disappointed and they're in a really tight place now that uh, it's been delayed for, for a couple months now and, and ongoing.
And as far as the stipend itself, then that period is done, isn't it? As far as so your workers are now looking for the lump sum of money from that 16 week period. Yeah, so basically from uh, essentially March 15th to uh, the first week of July was a 16-week period. Um, and basically once that data was, was uh, accrued, um, that, that determined the eligibility for the $4 per hour premium pay. And it's supposed to be paid out, as we understand it, as a, as a lump sum. Um, and uh, yeah, so far, so far, nothing. Uh, is it possible it's an accounting error or with everything going on, it's just something that uh, even though the federal government has been good at getting some of its uh, programs out quite quickly, is it possible that it's just delayed because uh, because there is so much going on? Yeah, so we know the federal funding has been is come through because we know that other provinces have paid it out. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, you know, given everything going on here that you've got a rapidly evolving situation, the workforce is being shifted around. And I think this is a real opportunity. You know, one, I, I think the government needs to, you know, put shine the light on this one and, and just get the pay out the door. But this is also really opportunity, an opportunity to reflect on, you know, where, where there's some problems in the system and, and where, where some of the problems in the bureaucracy can be fixed. And, and you know, there, there may be some structural issues that, that cause this. And, you know, these are always great uh, learning opportunities to, to fix those issues. But uh, in the meantime, I think there's, you know, we've got to put some emphasis on, um, being able to get this money out the door. And you mentioned, too, that some of the members, and and obviously there are workers that didn't qualify for this, do you think that's caused any kind of, I don't know if animosity is too strong, but I I think that anybody could make an argument, especially in the beginning, that if you were still going to work every day and you were a frontline worker, whether it's dealing in healthcare or dealing with somebody at a store, uh, we didn't know what was going on and it was higher risk. Is there some, you know, bad feelings between those who are eligible for this and those who aren't? No, I, I haven't seen that at all. Um, I, I mean, I think the problem here is this: is that the lowest paid frontline workers in the public and broader public sector uh, were removed from eligibility of this program. In particular, when you think of, you know, retail liquor and cannabis workers and childcare workers, and amongst many others, they're not the only ones. But in particular, those are the lowest paid, uh, you know, public, you know, basically private, broader public and, and direct public sector employees. And, you know, the speculation I would add, I would give to that is that, you know, providing pandemic premium to those groups has a very, very sharp economic impact amidst the crisis. It lifts up the bottom. It, it, that's what we like to see. But unfortunately, that's not that's not what we saw reflected in in the eligibility criteria. So that I think that's what's disappointing. I, I haven't heard frontline workers there um, have any animosity towards their colleagues in other industries, their fellow union members and other, who did receive it. I think they're just frustrated they weren't included uh, because they're, you know, again, this is in many cases, uh, they were some of the, the most at risk, but they were also the lowest paid. All right. Well, Paul, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks for the update and thanks for joining the program. Thanks very much. Have a good day. Well, with the weather forecast looking pretty good, if you like sunshine, a lot of people, I imagine, are gearing up for the long weekend, the last one of the summer, having a staycation, staying somewhere in the province. Maybe you are thinking about going to Whistler. Well, if so, the resort municipality of Whistler has some reminders for you about COVID-19. And joining us to talk about that is Jack Crompton, the mayor of Whistler. Mayor Crompton, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, I think last time we were chatting, it was before we'd really opened things up and we were still kind of waiting on the numbers and waiting to roam freely around the province. I know a lot Mm. of people have been going to Whistler. How have things been as far as COVID rules and welcoming people back? It's been busy and it's been nice to welcome people back. Uh, Certainly one of the things that we're really encouraging the public to remember is that when you go on vacation, COVID goes uh, with you. The COVID does not go on vacation. And so we need to continue to be vigilant in the way we do things, even when on vacation. And so we're asking people who visit the community, if you're in the village, to wear a mask, if you're on transit, to wear a mask, and to do those basic things that we all now know. Um, but just a reminder that even when on vacation, uh, those are critical to uh, British Columbia's success in um in, in taking on this pandemic. Uh, at this point, do you know if any of fines, because uh, since the, the province brought in the fines for people who are breaking the rules, do you know if any have been given out in Whistler? I'm not aware of any that have been given out in Whistler yet, no. Uh, but the reminder being, if you're coming there for the long weekend, uh, keep in mind uh, that uh, gatherings are to be limited and these rules are in place, and, and I suppose there could be fines given out. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think one of the most wonderful things about Whistler is those opportunities to get up in the Alpine and get away from people. We talk about a few spaces, big spaces. Well, if you get up into Whistler Blackcomb's tenure and go hiking, you'll see very few faces. If you get up to the top of the Sea to Sky uh, gondola, it'll be the same. And uh, that's a real encouragement I'm sharing with people is to get up into the mountains, get away from other people and just enjoy British Columbia and all it has to offer. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> oh yeah, it is. Um, I haven't, I was in Whistler last weekend. I had booked the trip long before I, I knew I was going to be talking with you today. Uh, but you're right. As you got away from the village and got away from that, it did open up and there weren't a lot of people. The village itself though, even with the signs uh, reminding people about distancing and mask wearing, the village did seem really busy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's one of those places that people need to be uh, cautious and vigilant about and put on a mask. And so that's that's our goal right now is that people hear our request to please wear a mask when you're in the village and, and even keep that physical distance. Um, it seems sometimes we think, well, there's just so many people here um, that six feet is impossible to get. But I think even when there's huge groups of people, you can still maintain your six feet if you're careful about it and that you maintain your six feet, I'll maintain my six feet. Um, we can do that effectively even when there's lots of, of people. Uh, would it be possible for you or for the resort to, to bring in a policy? Because I know a lot of the stores and the cafes and restaurants, they had those signs saying, please uh, wear a mask, but it's not mandatory. Would that be possible? Uh, not at this point. And our, our work right now is to work with our local businesses and to really get out the message that we would like people to wear masks. Please wear a mask. And um, the more businesses that take that on, I think the more and the more residents, Whistler residents that continue to put on masks when they're in the village, the more that becomes the Whistler way of doing things. And that's our goal is to turn mask wearing in the village into the Whistler way of doing things. Are you concerned at all with the, the, the two different types of crowds? There's kind of the daytime, the family crowd, and it was great to see a lot of families up and enjoying uh, the hike to the train wreck and enjoying the different mm-hmm. things that you could do. But then there's also the night crowd and, and, and those establishments are open. Are you concerned at all about, about uh, perhaps people uh, drinking and getting uh, in their groups uh, of friends, uh, maybe mesh their bubbles and uh, kind of forgetting about the rules? 
You know, with their businesses and, and, and residents and the government has been kind of working with those two groups of people as long as we've been around 40 years. And so uh, that's something that we know how to do well. And I've been impressed with uh, the restaurants and how they've stepped up and really ensured that that safe experience is there. But I certainly don't want to restrain my request for vigilance. If you are going to be spending time and, and, and having alcohol with your friends, uh, make sure it's in a small group, it's in your bubble, and you're not interacting with other people, not just because there's going to be a fine applied, but because you are a part of our answer to COVID-19. And so uh, we as a, as a community are, are taking this very seriously, and whether it's those big groups of families wandering the village or, or people at night in a restaurant or a pub, we are, uh, you know, working hard to ensure that it's a safe experience. We, for, for British Columbia to, to succeed in this, we need to be able to understand how we can deliver safe tourism experiences. And, and for sure, that's Whistler's priority. We really want to work hard to deliver safe tourism experiences. Uh, to, to date, at this point, do you know, have there been any positive cases uh, with the people working at Whistler businesses or residents in Whistler? The, the most recent information we have is that there were uh, 19 cases um, in the Sea to Sky corridor between January and the end of July. So those aren't broken out by community. That's just the Sea to Sky. So that includes Squamish, Temperton, the Sunshine Coast and Whistler. All right. Um, there, there's a line in uh, the information that I was sent saying that anybody who is concerned they may have COVID-19 symptoms can get tested in Whistler. So is Whistler set up that if somebody is real, thinks, oh, I've got a, a sore throat or I've got some of these symptoms, they can go and get the test? Definitely. Yeah, that's a priority of ours to ensure that we can not just keep things safe, but also uh, allow people access to testing. And, and do you know, have there been any problems with lineups or people get, having access? Uh, not to this point, no. It's 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 been um, successful. Our, there's it's it's a, we have a limited window in the afternoon uh, where people can access testing, but it's been successful thus far for sure. And how are businesses doing? Uh, it did see, again, it did seem busy, which was great to see. Uh, but uh, we know that uh, restaurants are, are, I mean, and, and restaurants with the expanded patios uh, looked like they were taking full advantage of that. But but tourism must be taking a bit of a hit. Oh, as I said from the beginning, this will be devastating for British Columbia's tourism uh, industry. And so my request to British Columbians is to consider, you know, exploring all of B.C. this fall and winter. And uh, it's been really exciting for me anyway to meet many British Columbians who'd never been to Whistler before. Uh, they live right down the road and they've taken this opportunity to come up and to visit us. And my hope is that communities like ours that lean so heavily on tourism will see British Columbians travel this fall and winter and um, really support this uh, sector that's so critical to British Columbia's economy. I mean, last year, tourism was the number one uh, sector in the British Columbia economy. And I think it's important that all of us uh, come together and support an industry that's you know served our province well for a long time. And are you reaching out then and trying to get that message as well to people who maybe don't ski? I mean, ski, coming to Whistler and skiing is very expensive. It's certainly not in everybody's budget. But are there other things people can do even as we go into the fall and winter? Oh, you know, that's one of the things I think is misunderstood about Whistler. It's a terrific place for non-alpine skiers. You can learn how to snowshoe, cross-country ski. There's all kinds of um, alternatives to 
um, alpine skiing in our community in the winter, and the dining's incredible. The, the, every British Columbia will be able to find something to do in Whistler, and we hope we'll, t- we'll take advantage of that. All right, uh, Mayor, we will leave it there. Hope everybody has a very safe and uh, fun weekend if they're heading that way. Uh, Mayor Crompton, thanks for your time. Jill, thank you. appreciate the time to chat to you. Lots to talk about today, as we've been hearing in the news, Education Minister Rob Fleming talking about the money that will be allocated to school districts, that for health and safety measures as kids and teachers go back to school during this pandemic. $101 million, that's the first installment, about $8 million for independent schools, keeping $12 million back for an emergency fund. That's just the first phase of that funding. So lots of reaction coming on that. Right now, though, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about a petition that is continuing to grow and it is calling for an end to the horse-drawn trolley that goes around Stanley Park. Peter Fricker joins me now. He is the communications director with the Vancouver Humane Society. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, How did the petition start? Uh, Well, we had been looking at the the issue of uh, horse carriages in general and also specifically as it pertains to Stanley Park and the horse trolley that's that's a tourist attraction in the park. And we have always been opposed to uh, horse carriages in urban settings because of the the pollution, the noise, the uh, long hours on hard pavements that we think is not a good environment for horses. Um, But in this particular case, it's really a, a safety issue where the uh, the horse-drawn trolley is sharing a roadway through the park with uh, motorists and cyclists. Has, something, has it changed at all with the traffic configuration and with the changes that have taken place in the park during the pandemic? Yes, it's got worse. The current, uh, and, and I think temporary configuration, at least we think it's temporary, um, has put, uh, there are two lanes, one devoted uh, to motorists, one for cyclists, and in the motorist lane, that's where they've put the, the trolley. And what's happening is the traffic is getting backed up behind that slow-moving trolley. And some drivers are uh, veering into the, the cycle lane when they get frustrated uh, to pass the trolley and uh, and just veering out into that lane. And, and obviously, uh, that's you know just an accident waiting to happen. It's just very dangerous. And we think it's putting the, the horses... Uh, motorists and uh, cyclists all at risk. Uh, that's actually something I had thought about when they first announced that they were going to uh, restrict that one lane and that it was going to be continued. As a motorist, I was curious what would happen in that scenario because there has to be, and you've just explained it, there there has to be times with one lane of traffic where motorists are going to get stuck behind the horse-drawn carriages. Yes, and obviously it's very frustrating. And, and obviously the, the, the larger picture with this is the, the park board is struggling to accommodate demand from uh, increasing demand from cyclists for access to, and for motorists to access to the park. And it's, you know, it's obviously a complex issue. But from our point of view, to throw in uh, a 19th century form of uh, transportation into that complex mix just makes that uh, issue much more difficult. And we think that if the trolley were removed, that would go in some way to, to helping solve the, the issue of trying to accommodate both motorists, cyclists, and pedestrians entering the park. Uh, talking about safety for people that use the park and people that drive, cycle, uh, pedestrians and such, are you concerned at the horses themselves in the act of drawing the carriage? 
Well, we do know that these are horses that you know are bred to pull uh, you know, heavy weights and, and so on. But what uh, people need to realize is that the, an urban setting is just not the right place for horses. And we've seen them <clears throat> banned in uh, Montreal, in Chicago, uh, looking at it in New York and many other cities around the world because of uh, incidents that have happened because horses have collapsed from uh, heat exhaustion or or uh, they're, they're just, they slip on pavement um, and in addition to that, you know, they're they're right in the middle of the traffic. They're breathing breathing in exhaust, and there's always the chance that they'll be spooked by traffic by by traffic noise. And of course, that's what exactly what happened back in 2016 when uh, a car honked its horn. One of the trolley horses was spooked, and they went off the roadway, right down onto the seawall, and nearly went off the seawall. Uh, they smashed through a, par- a park bench. There were uh, tourists jumping off the the trolley while it was moving. It was a, a near disaster, and we think that's why we're saying that this is really just an accident waiting to happen. That this is the kind of things that can happen when you mix uh, horses in a in an urban setting. Uh, and when you talk about the the 2016 incident, there just happened to be a global crew in the park, uh, and the cameraman captured that uh, spooking and the the carriage being pulled away by the horse. It was captured uh, on his video camera. Uh, are you concerned, though, if that wasn't enough to get people on board seeing that happen, if that wasn't enough to get people talking about this and having a serious discussion about maybe discontinuing the horse-drawn carriage, what is well, we were very disappointed at the time that the the park board in the city didn't take that incident as a clear warning of what what could happen and how close that was to being a, a disaster that may may have involved injury or loss of life. But unfortunately, in our experience, that's kind of the way uh, governments and officials work with this these kinds of situations. Uh, many years ago, we campaigned for a long time for BC to ban uh, the ownership of dangerous exotic animals at the time. It was legal to own lions and tigers, and we were ignored until uh, in 2007, uh, at a 100-mile house, a pet tiger killed a woman. And it was shortly after that that the government was galvanized into action, and now B.C. has the best legislation uh, dealing with uh, a prohibition of dangerous exotic animals. You know, and, and our view is, well, why wait till there's a disaster? You know, when, when there's already, we've had one warning in 2016 that a horse can be spooked, that the, the trolley can go off the roadway, that there can be a, a risk to life. Uh, why wait for another incident in which there, something tragic might actually happen? Uh, have you re- I know you've reached out to the park board. Have you reached out at all to the group that actually runs the tours? We have had contact with them in the past, but not uh, not recently. Um, one issue that has come up, and, and we under, we understand it, is people are asking, uh, well, if the uh, the trolley were removed and, and banned, what will happen to the horses? And we're committed to working with the the operator to find uh, humane alternatives uh, for the for activities for the horses. Uh, one thing we've looked into is that um, this particular type of horse draft horses that are used for these kinds of jobs um, are particularly suitable for uh, equine therapy or horse therapy uh, um, in which vulnerable people uh, get a benefit from, from being near and around uh, horses. And there are several groups, I believe, in, in B.C. We would be uh, willing to engage with those groups and with all the uh, horse rescue groups in B.C., to ensure that uh, there are, would either be rehoming or alternatives for these horses. 
So that's a conversation that we would be willing to have with the operator if, if indeed the, the trolley were removed from the park. Uh, because that is one of the concerns. If we're talking about horses that were raised specifically to do this, if this isn't happening anymore, uh, one might think that the horses would be destroyed. That's that's what we, we you know we're committed to to avoiding. Um, although I have to say, although you know we'd be willing to to work and get other groups and, and the equine community involved to to uh, to deal with that situation, we we do believe that when a business uh, uses animals to make profit. That it's incumbent on the uh, the business to ensure that they have a lifetime commitment to the animal. Um, you know, in an, in an ordinary business, when they're affected by a downturn or a change in regulation, they can just cut costs, close down, sell their equipment, and there's no problem. But when a business that employs animals, whether it's you know, sled dogs or, or horses, or whether it's a zoo or an aquarium, um, it's not really fair for them to say, "Oh, you know, something's changed. We've got it. We've we've got these animals will all be slaughtered," and and point the finger at somebody else or whoever's, uh, whatever the source of the change is. It's their responsibility when they take on a care of an animal to commit to that animal to a lifetime. But that's that's a principle that we believe in. But nevertheless, we would be uh, willing to uh, work with and negotiate with the the operator if if he needed help and. Rehoming those horses. Uh, do you think that there might be more traction now with the petition uh, that is getting signatures, and given the fact that uh, the pandemic has stopped a lot of tourists from coming to Vancouver, well, going anywhere really? And I would imagine this is a company, this is a business that depends greatly on tourists taking part. That that, that may be true. I don't know, you know, the, the particular circumstances of the business and how it's been affected financially by by uh, the pandemic. Um, one thing that that does bring to mind is that there are, um, you know, if there is a, a loss, you know, some people are obviously worried about the the loss of a tourist attraction in the in the park. One of the the alternatives that we've looked at from from around the world are uh, pedal powered rickshaws, and in some places they have uh, been put into the tourist areas of, of uh, popular tourist destinations, and have proven very popular. And in this case, they would also fit in. Uh, I think with the uh, the lanes provided to cyclists without without any great um, problem of, of uh, you know hindering hindering either the car either motorists or or cyclists, um, and it's a popular thing with tourists. So I think there are alternatives to having uh, horse trolleys in in the park. All right. Well, we'll continue to follow along and see what happens with this. Peter Fricker, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, a Vancouver woman who lost her partner, Colin McKay, five years ago and then decided she was going to put a memorial plaque on a bench at Kitts Beach. She and his family purchased the plaque, adopted the bench, if you will, to remember him. She then spent four days painting the bench and made it into this beautiful piece of art. She's also an artist and she painted it in this very uh, very fun and, and beautiful way. And anybody who's been there has likely seen the bench, walked by the bench, maybe even read the plaque on the bench. Well, it's not there anymore. And joining me to talk about what has happened is the artist behind that bench, Julia Goodkova. And Julia is with me on the line. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I think people have been following along with this. Anybody who has walked in that part of Kitsilano has seen this bench, is familiar with it. It is not there any longer. How did you first come to realize or how did you learn that the bench had been removed? Um, I found out through a Facebook post that a stranger had made 
um, speaking about how sad they were to see it removed. So I was quite in disbelief, and I I usually go and visit the bench every morning on my morning walks, except for Mondays when I teach yoga, and that happens to be the day when they removed it this past Monday. So that's how I found out. And for people that aren't familiar with the story, that maybe haven't seen the bench, describe again or explain again what you did, what this memorial bench was all about. Well, my late partner, Colin Leslie McKay, passed away five years ago. And last year, in time for the four-year memorial of his passing, I, I decided to gather with some family and friends and the memorial bench that we've purchased in his honor was beginning to look um, very um, weathered and unkept. And I, as an artist, I decided to take it upon myself to breathe some life and color back into it to reflect the the man that Colin was and, and the love that we shared. And... Um, Soon after painting it, the Parks Board reached out saying that they will remove the bench uh, before our gathering, at which point I started an online petition, which has gathered over 10,000 signatures to date. And um, the story got picked up by the the news and the the media. And so um, the Parks Board had postponed the removal. And actually, it was um, one of the commissioners, Tricia Barker, who had put forward a motion to start a, a bench mural program and um, it took over a year for the parks board to review that motion and, and it was denied so there's no currently um, allowance for any beautification of the parks benches mm-hmm. and so yeah they, they went ahead and, and removed the bench during the time that the bench has been up, like you said, there is a petition with more than 10,000 signatures in support. Have you heard from anybody saying they think the bench is an eyesore or they think what you did was wrong and the bench should go? Not at all. I'm actually so deeply humbled by the amount of love and support that I've received from complete strangers. I quite regularly get messages and photographs of um, people visiting the bench and um, saying how maybe in the past they weren't as aware of the plaques and the, the names of those who have passed on. And, and now it's it's an opportunity to stop and reflect of um, on those who are no longer with us. And for people that haven't seen the bench, it's not like you went there and just threw some paint on the thing. Like you said, you're an artist. Can you describe the design and how you came up with what it was that you painted on the bench? Mm -hmm. Well, it was um, about a four-day process from cleaning, sanding, priming, and then painting the bench. And I was really inspired by um, really the the scenery of of the beautiful West Coast and Kitsilano. Um, So it was elements um, inspired by the the waves and the sunset um, and uh, just the vibrancy and the color that um, Colm's life represented, but also that our beautiful British Columbia represents. Um, So I really wanted it to, to feel joyful for anyone who encountered it. You mentioned that there was this this process. You had the support of two of the councillors, I think the two NPA councillors. Uh, they did discuss it 
oh, sorry, not the councillors, the commissioners. Uh, you had the support of two uh, of the commissioners on the park board. They did discuss it. Uh, the notes of, of the meeting uh, talk about the colonial audit and how nothing can be decided about art right now. Uh, are you disappointed that with everything that's going on, this is something that the park board has made a priority? Um, I am, especially given the difficult times that we find ourselves in and in the world that is looking for a little more closeness and joy um, to remove something that was bringing so much um, joy to the community. It it doesn't seem um, fair. And also I've attended both um, the live meeting and I watched the recorded meeting um, that happened during the, the COVID lockdown. And it was never once, um, the petition was never once mentioned or brought up in the discussion process. So I really don't understand how elective, elective public officials can go ahead and make these decisions without taking into consideration um, 10,000 plus voices. And um, on the on the um, decolonization aspect that you've mentioned, I think that's really important and I support that. But in speaking with the parks board, they they mentioned that um, the current existing memorial benches uh, will not be affected and they are looking at other ways to incorporate um, consideration and voices of the First Nations, which I wholeheartedly support. But I, I don't see how um, this memorial bench in any way was interfering with that. Uh, in a statement from the Park Board, uh, they've said that your bench is currently in the Park Board secure storage and that they are going to continue engaging with you on the next steps. What do you see as the future? I mean, on the bright side, I suppose that I think that means they haven't destroyed it, that it's still intact. What would you like to see or what could you do with this bench? Um, I'm very happy to hear that. I, I haven't heard that personally from them. Um, the last communication we had was this past Friday, and they didn't mention the removal of the bench. Um, in my mind, I thought I'd call them on Monday after the weekend, given that they're a public office, and by Monday it was gone. Um, so in terms of my desires, of course, my first wish and desire would, see, would, would be to see the bench returned where it was. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm open to to other options. I, I personally don't own property, so I can't quite place it in uh, outside of my apartment or anything like that. And, you know, for Colin, he, he was a Catalano resident for a very long time, and I still am, and so is his mom. So this is really our home. And I feel like it's, at this point, it's far beyond a, a personal matter, given how much it has touched so many hearts of the public, I, I believe that the bench should be in a place where it can be enjoyed by our community. And, and are you, you mentioned too that it, it was taken down without any real notice. Uh, they gave you a call on Friday, but like you said, it was the weekend and it was gone before you were able to call them back. Um, are you upset with the way that happened in that they, they were engaged with you, they looked at this, and then when it came to actually removing it, they didn't even let you go and, and have one walk by or la- one last sit uh, with the bench? Yes, that was very, very upsetting, and I, I did not expect that. And I genuinely was trying to handle this matter in a very 
private and respectful way. I was avoiding going to the media. And if you look at the petition, I didn't make um, an update until um, months past the June meeting for various reasons. One, the city was in the lockdown. I didn't want to mobilize people to to go and, and engage in a way that might be unsafe, especially at the time when we were asked to stay home. Um, so in my mind, I really saw there was still space for peaceful dialogue. And um, I, I was really blindsided by how quickly things happened and without notice, proper notice. Well, we're going to continue uh, following along and uh, please do keep us updated on uh, if anything changes. Julia, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone who's continuing to show their support. I really appreciate it. Well, we know there is some anxiety with the return to school. I've also talked to a lot of parents who are counting down the days, ready to send their kids back. We've talked to teachers who say, yes, we have cleaning protocols in place. Let's do this. Let's get this done in a safe way. One of the things, though, and we've heard Dr. Bonnie Henry talk about this repeatedly, is the zero tolerance for going into a school, going into a workplace, if you are showing symptoms, particularly symptoms of COVID-19. But how do you know the difference if you're showing a symptom of the virus or if it's a common cold? the starting of the flu, or even allergies. Well, Jason Tetro joins me now, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's also a microbiologist, immunologist. Jason, great to talk with you again. Ah, great to be joining you. Is it best just to err on the side of caution, and if you've got the sniffles, stay home? Well, I mean, if you got the sniffles, you should be staying home anyways. Uh, and, and I get that people may be saying, hey, look, you know, this could be allergies. But it all depends on the type of symptom, and we can actually go through that, which will determine um, what is the most likely problem that you're facing. Uh, let's do that, because I know one of the symptoms is fatigue. Uh, I, I dare anybody out there to say you've never felt fatigue. Oh, no, no. The, you see, the thing is, is that when you feel COVID fatigue, it's like you've been hit by a, a, a wall. <laughs> it's just, right. it's the most important, like, it's incredible. Uh, and, and this is all over the world. Um, I have friends in Malaysia and Geneva and, and other places that have also had COVID, and it's all common. You just feel like you can't even get out of bed. It's that vicious. So if you feel that, there's a very good likelihood you may want to only get up to go and get yourself tested. All right. Sounds good. What else then? What, what do you look for that would make it different, say, from the startings of a cold, the, the, the regular mm-hmm. uh, things you might feel in the fall, to something more serious? Yeah. So one of the things that we've seen with respect to COVID is that when it's getting into your um, nasopharyngeal region, uh, your sinuses and everything, um, it doesn't seem to affect what we call the goblet cells. And these are the ones that produce mucus. <laughs> so if you, be, if you have a very, very dry cough, uh, along with the fatigue, then there's a good likelihood you're talking about COVID. But if you're all of a sudden sniffling and, and snorting, then there's a good likelihood that you have a cold. And if your eyes are watering while you're sniffling and sneezing, there's a good chance that that's allergies. So that's really what you're trying to look for is if it's dry, probably a virus. If it's wet, then you probably are dealing with one of the common colds or maybe even the flus. And then if it's wet with your eyes, then you're probably thinking about allergies. Uh, but, I mean, the bottom line, if you show up at a school or a workplace with any of those things, like we said, even if you say, oh, don't worry, it's just allergies, people are still going to be looking at you a little funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I remember when we would joke about, you know, showing up at an airport with a mask on and people would, you know, take you to secondary. Right now, if you show up and you even have the slightest little bit of a sniffle, oh, my goodness, the side eye is going to be insane. 
<laughs> well, I, I flew uh, a month ago I, and when, with the temperature checks, I got sent for some reason. It wasn't me. It was the thermometer itself, but I didn't pass the first mm-hmm. one. I felt like everyone around me was suddenly going to turn on me and think, what is this woman doing in the airport? How dare she? The second oh, yeah. one was fine. I was fine and healthy and there was no problem with it. But I, I, see, I get that. If you just even sneeze in public, people look at you sideways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And honestly, Joe, you get so heated in your debates and, and how well you do on radio. I can see why the thermometer would go off. So <laughs> You don't, you don't have to blame the machine. Right, exactly. Um, but the thing is that when, when you have any kind of symptom in this sort of um, heightened state of, of you know, observation, watching everybody, which, by the way, is my normal state, <laughs> but when you see that, of course you're going to start wondering, well, why is this person doing this or why is this person doing that? But also remember... We were doing this before COVID showed up. It takes so long for us to have that self-efficacy to know what to do right um, whenever we have symptoms. Because for the longest time, all we've done is, oh, I got a sniffle. I'll just take an OTC med and, you know, I'll be fine. So, yeah, it's going to take some time. um, But peer pressure is one of the best ways to make sure that society follows through. Is that something too, though, interesting when you mention the medicine that you can just go to a pharmacy and buy? If you have, say, a sinus headache and mm-hmm. you go and buy medicine and it takes it away, is that a sign that it, it's not something more serious? You just had a sinus headache? Yeah, exactly. Um, when you're talking about uh, COVID, um, when this first came about, uh, there was also fever that was really involved in those preliminary symptoms. And they were saying that you could take um, uh, acetaminophen, uh, paracetamol uh, for, for that to help. Help. Um, not, don't take the aspirin or the ibuprofen. That was basically the word of the day. Um, that's changed a little bit, but the fact is that if you take any other types of medication and they're not helping you and you have that dry cough and you have that massive fatigue, then there's a very good likelihood you need to get yourself tested. Uh, the, the list of symptoms as well, those are the, the more, most common ones, but there are mm-hmm. also, there's also things like headache, muscle ache. And again, is it, do you think that, or from what you've heard, is that also similar to the fatigue isn't just a normal fatigue, the ache is not a normal ache? Oh, yeah, the ache is not a normal ache. And most of the time, the ache is coming from the coughing. Um, for anyone who has had COVID, probably, you know, call in, tell the show, it's vicious. Um, it literally rocks you every time you have to cough. And that's going to affect your body, and it's going to give you a, a, a sense of um, fatigue, but also a lot of pain in many of your joints and other things like that. It's just normal. So that's the type of thing that you really should be thinking about. If it's just um, that, that shivers and those chills and those aches that we all know come from the flu and the parainfluenza viruses and the rhinoviruses, then you're probably not too worried about it. But if it's as a result of the fact that you're coughing so hard it's dry and you got that fatigue and maybe even a fever, then yes, the coronavirus is definitely something you should think about. Is that though where we see some of the confusion too? Because we, we hear about those cases and, and like you said, we hear about cases where people have been in hospital for 105 days. They've been mm-hmm. on ventilators. It's knocked them to the ground. But then, I mean, even today, Dwayne The Rock Johnson comes out and says his entire family had it. His kids bounced back really quickly. It hit himself and his wife harder, but nothing to that extent. No, and the the reality that we all have to face is our immune systems are going to be independent of everybody else. So we are all unique in our immune systems. And unfortunately, some immune systems are going to be extremely good at fighting off uh, this virus. 
Some are not going to be. Uh, it also depends on the amount of virus that you got exposed to. Uh, higher amounts could possibly lead to more severe infections if it got into your lungs. I mean, there's a number of different parameters uh, that, that are involved in determining the severity of, your, uh, of a COVID disease. So really what you want to do is you want to try and get yourself um, figured out as soon as possible. If you're positive, you know, get the test so that you can make sure that you're positive. Um, and if it is something that isn't there, sort of like, you know, the sniffles or the watering eyes or something like that, then at least still be cautious, still be aware that, you, you know, something's not right with you. But by the same respect, don't panic because, you know, it, it, it's not going to help anybody. Uh, you mentioned the immune system, and that, that's something that I've been seeing too. Is people talking about this as, as long as, as well as being careful, washing your hands, doing all the things we're being mm-hmm. told to do to boost your immune system? I always thought you either your immune system is is the one you have. Is there a way to boost it? Well, we don't call it boost. Um, that's sort of a thing that you hear on you know health programs in the <laughs> afternoon shows. Uh, you can't boost your immune system, but what you can do is you can help to regulate the way that your immune system responds to something. And as we've all heard for the last number of months, when you have COVID, one of the biggest problems that we face is inflammation. So the idea of taking, um, you know, dietary supplements or just having some more of a particular supplement to help um, combat inflammation can be a good thing. So vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin C, these are all very good things to be able to have in your diet on a regular basis. Fiber is going to be able to help. Um, So at the end of the day, the, the idea of having a very good diet is really important because that's going to help you to minimize the amount of inflammation, and that can possibly help to reduce the chances of the COVID getting extremely severe. Uh, so what, what would be the most important piece of advice then that you would give parents who are concerned that they're going to wake up one day and their kid's going to have a sniffle and they're not going to know whether or not to send their child to school? If your child has the sniffles or is essentially you know, rubbing their nose or, or their eyes or something like that, it's probably not going to be COVID. If, however, they wake up and they've got that really hard cough and they're hurting from it and they just can't even get out of bed, then I really recommend that you call your healthcare provider, have a discussion with them, and probably see if the test can be arranged. I do not want anybody to have to go through that, and I really hope that that's the last case scenario, but at the end of the day, we all have to be prepared just in case. All right, Jason, we'll leave it there for today. Always good to talk with you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Take care.